0: Hello, Acquired LPs, and welcome to another episode of The LP Show. Thanks again, as always, for joining us. David, we embark on a new journey, sort of a new mini-series today for The LP Show that captures a lot of other things we've talked about on the show, but we wanted to do a little bit more uh, formalization. So what are we doing?
1: A first echo, Ben, your thanks to all of you as LPs means the world to us. We are formalizing our VC Fundamentals series uh, here on the LP show, so we think about this kind of stuff all the time. Is probably obvious and permeates all <laughs> acquired episodes. Like, what does it mean to be a VC? How do you be one? How do you? What are the jobs that you do as a VC? How do you get better at them? How are you constantly learning? And uh, we know many of you think about the same thing too. Whether you're uh, you are a investor or an aspiring investor. Or, you know, like Sun Tzu says, know yourself, know your enemy. Uh, Even if you are (laughs) an entrepreneur or working at a company, like uh, it behooves you, I think, to know some of the mindset and jobs uh, to be done for VCs as well.
0: Or in a less enemy framework way, (laughs) know the incentives and the jobs to be done by your upstream, whatever it is, and in this case, upstream capital. So it's like, you know, if you're making sales, know where your sort of what your customers' motivations are. The best salespeople are the people that just solve problems for customers. And if you're a you know an operator and you can figure out what the what a, a VC is optimizing for and and deeply understand that, then you know you'll have at, at the very least a better time pitching, but probably a better working relationship with upstream capital. And I think higher
1: success rate too. We also recognize that venture um, traditionally and still to this day has systemically excluded, um, you know, a lot of people who aren't white men. Uh, and so part of the motivation of wanting to do this is just to open up, um, some of the knowledge on the inside of what it's like to do this job and have that be accessible to everyone, people who, um, who are interested in, in coming into our industry. We want to make that more accessible. Yep. So here's how we're thinking about it at the outset today's episode is going to be about sourcing uh sort of the first uh in the natural cycle of activity uh for vcs the rough outline we're thinking is sourcing today next episode will be on picking and uh and winning winning in quotes uh which will be a fun thing yeah winning winning the deal and trying to avoid the winner's curse but really I'm all about Judgment. Next episode after that will be on company building. What happens in your relationship with companies after the value you win add the deal, uh, and you wake up the next morning? I'm really excited for the one after that, which is portfolio management. This isn't. This is something that for the first you know seven plus years of my VC career, I spent literally zero time thinking about, and now I think is at least equally important with all the other aspects of of being a
0: VC. Yeah, this is one. So these first three sourcing, sort of picking and, and obviously winning and company building are sort of front office for a VC. It's sort of what the founders see a lot you know what the job of the VC is, and then the 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 rest of them, starting with portfolio management. And I won't spoil the next two. Are kind of back office.
1: Believe me, all of our listeners are in huge suspense <laughs> waiting for the last. For two sure. Right now.
0: Um, but yeah, I'd like portfolio management. We did a great deep dive on it with uh, with Charles Hudson on what sort of portfolio construction looks like in seed and pre seed. But I think uh, that'll be a good chance for us to sort of go more formally into it. Yeah,
1: and then the last two we're thinking are going to be fundraising for VCs themselves every couple of years they have to subject themselves to the gauntlet uh with lps just like you all and then the last one firm management like how do you think about building managing a firm people human capital all aspects of a brand it'll be super fun
0: yep and uh listeners we're not planning to do all six of these in one fell swoop here we are going to uh um, sort of mix them in across uh, a bunch of other topics on the lp show but kind of have a um every few episodes mini series here well should we dive into? Yeah, before we dive in, David, I just need to give a quick update to you. We have liftoff with the Falcon. Uh, hey. Here, here we sit recording with the um, what? What day they say? Wednesday after the Demo Two mission and. Yeah, Falcon is away with the 60 Starlink, I think 60, but Starlink satellites in the fairings in a very underpublicized launch for SpaceX, which is like crazy given how much publicity there was for a launch, you know, just a few days ago and here they are shooting up another Falcon 9 rocket with no fanfare, so routine,
1: just a few days after the Dragon 2 crew test, right? Was that was that the official name? I know that mission was Demo 2, but Demo 2, that was it. Yes super cool all right well should we lift off let's do it okay so first everything we're gonna talk about here we're talking about from the perspective of early stage vc probably a lot of it applies to later stage and growth vc as well but some of it won't stuff like um friends starting companies uh and secondly disclaimer upfront before we jump into sourcing (laughs) Really, this applies to everything in venture and in life, but uh, I think especially here, there's no one right answer to how to source investments. There are a lot of rules, uh, some of which we'll talk about. All of those rules exist to be broken. You know, it reminds me, I've actually had two two sort of mentors, um, at various points in time in my career, give me some version of this advice. Uh, one was Andy Ratcliffe, of uh, course, one of the founding GPs at, uh, at Benchmark. Um, who retired and, uh, became a professor at GSB. Um, and I was lucky enough to take, um, one of his classes when I was there. And I sort of asked him, um, you know, the question of like how, uh, how do I, how do I be a great VC? And he gave me a bunch of answers that we'll talk about later in the show. But he's like, look, at the end of the day, you got to figure out what works for you. And like, uh, what works for you is going to work for you. It's not gonna work for somebody else.
0: Yeah. And David, when you say rules are meant to be broken, like friendly reminder to everyone that venture capital is an asset class that is wholly made by outliers and non-consensus bets. So in a lot of ways, the purpose of learning how things have been done before and how other people do things are that you can selectively choose when you want to uh, be different and why. The other great piece of
1: advice uh, was from a former Sequoia partner you know, basically just said the same version of the same thing that that the best advice that Don Valentine ever gave him was that what led Don to Cisco and what led uh, Mike Moritz to Google isn't going to be the same thing that leads leads him to uh, whatever his big win is going to be. So always a good thing to keep in mind. Okay. So with that disclaimer, why is sourcing important? I thought this would be a good place to start because I remember back when i first joined madrona as an associate and my first gig in vc i don't know if you ever felt this way ben but i remember thinking like well the real fun stuff and the real work is working with companies after you've already invested in them and being a board member and helping with strategic decisions and hiring and that feels like meaty you know sourcing yeah it's important and new investments of course are important but like that's just top of the funnel. It feels kind of like sales. You have a lot of conversations. A lot of them go nowhere. I just remember feeling like it was kind of the least interesting part of the job for me when I first started in VC.
0: It also can be soul crushing because a lot of the times it is the a lot of the companies that you want to get into rebuffing you. And then a lot of the people that you unfortunately have to say no to, you rebuffing them and trying to do so in a way that is not incredibly off-putting and crushing to the incredible journey that they're on. And so like it creates a negative emotion kind of for everyone, or at least for you in both scenarios, except for that very rare one where you're shooting the gap and you're both like, yeah, let's do this together. And that happens so rarely. Um, whereas once you start working with
1: a company, then it's like, well, you're on the same team. Like you're in the, you're in the foxhole together. But uh, I came to learn and, um, Again, not saying I'm right, but I think this is a pretty wrong mindset and uh, an important <laughs> myth to dispel. And there are a couple of reasons for this, but I think it's said no more eloquently than what Sequoia says all the time and what Doug Leonie, I think, said on our episode, which is we're only as good as our next investment. And that is fundamentally the mindset you have to have as a Venture investor, and especially somebody focused on building a firm, no matter how much success you've had in the past, like there's always change in this industry. Success in the past may afford you the opportunity to see good investments going forward. But if you get lazy and if you take your eye off the ball you're going to miss some of those and somebody else is going to come up and get them and then you're going to start to fall behind like this is an industry of aggregating returns and very quickly disaggregating returns if you start to miss one or two
0: the other important thing that like ultimately what is a fund a fund is a set of 20 to 40 investments and the thing that determines what those investments will be is what the top of the funnel is like it's a gigantic funnel and there's no way that something's going to come out the bottom of the funnel that isn't in the top of the funnel. So the top of the funnel is crucially important because it is the governing factor on the whole world of things you could invest in.
1: Totally. Totally.
0: And then the other final
1: point on this is, uh, you know, that I'll say, which again is a good reminder always to keep as a VC, which is that like the raw materials of our industry are entrepreneurs and This is where you get your hands dirty and interact with entrepreneurs writ large. And you can't take for granted the fact that even, you know, Ben, as you were alluding to, like, you're going to end up not getting there on most of these, on investing in most of these entrepreneurs you meet. But that doesn't discount the fact that they're still on an entrepreneurial journey, right? And like, they're giving you their time. You need to respect that. And like you said, it, it can be easy to get really jaded about this, but like... It only takes being proved wrong a couple times, which if you spend, you know, anything more than like six to 12 months in the venture industry, you will get proved wrong very quickly <laughs> to start to change your mindset around
0: this. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments.
1: Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how QuarterPro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. QuarterPro has built a world-class user interface for this.
0: Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search guidance or market outlook. QuarterPro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications.
1: Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through Literally every individual slide in Quarter's database covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides.
0: no dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter david i do have to give you an update uh we are looking at a drone ship right now the camera feed stayed on a falcon 9 is coming down and it's a little left to center but it is stable Uh, Would we give it a, like a eight point five on the landing? It's st- yeah, eight point five. So the uh, the judges, uh, there's a few eight point fours in there, but yeah, okay. that's about right. <laughs> love it. I love these real time <laughs> updates. Happy to provide.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, so that's why it's important. So we're going to talk about broad strategies, and th- this is this is mostly firm driven, although I think you know firms, VC firms, many of them do have room for different styles amongst partners and and investors within them. So there's some drift here, uh, but it's mostly going to be aligned with what your firm strategy is. And then we're going to get into actual brass tacks tactics of sourcing. But at a high level, Ben, jump in if you feel there are others. I think there are sort of three wide buckets of strategies that you can have for sourcing as a VC firm. And those range from uh, one end of the spectrum being completely generalist
0: and opportunistic. I will invest in whatever interesting stuff comes across my plate, which is pretty synonymous with network driven, like because the things that come across your plate, if you're generalist and not sort of doing proactive work, you are going to be inbound driven. And you can be a great generalist investor and do outbound work, but then you have to have an additional thing on your thesis that says, we're generalist investors and the way that we find companies is and sort of define what your, if you're a marketer, think about it as a gigantic funnel, what your omni-channel strategy is. We're on Facebook and we're on, you know, we're doing content, but we don't have a Twitter approach. For a generalist fund, this might be, you know, we are proactively meeting with senior execs at these two companies to figure out who the great people are at those companies that we may want to fund, but we're not going to meetups, pick your battles there. The thing that I would say about generalist is it then requires one more level of, okay, but what's the, what's the way in which you intend to meet people? And the default, you know, a way to do this is why well, I already know, lots of great people that are going to start lots of great companies. And so like, I'm going to invest in them. That's been, I think the legacy of the venture industry for a long time.
1: You know, I would classify again like like i said it's a little bit different partner to partner but generally i would classify like say founders fund as a generalist fund you know grew out of the paypal mafia uh and peter thiel i think it was brian singerman who was on invest like the best with patrick um and he talked about his primary sourcing strategy is he just asks everybody he meets to send him companies, and then he just starts to tune like, okay, who sends me good companies? Who sends me less good companies? If you start sending me good companies, I'll like pay more attention to you. If you send me less good companies, I'll pay less attention to you. But like, I'm open to, I'm open to anything. Ben, like you're saying, that can work because he has an incredible network, as do all the folks at Founders Fund. Okay, so that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, the next, why don't we go to the the opposite end of the spectrum, and then we'll talk about the the strategy in between. The opposite of the end of the spectrum is being completely thesis-driven uh, as a firm. So the classic example for me of a thesis-driven firm is Union Square Ventures (USB), and they've kept evolving their thesis. But I think I always think, kind of in my mind, classic USB, which was the mid 2000s, late 2000s, when they were investing in um, you know in leading early rounds in, in Twitter, in Tumblr, in uh, Foursquare in uh, Zynga and kind of these, you know, uh, first real, real big, big breakout uh, new internet companies after the uh, smaller exit internet 2.0 of um, kind of Flickr and the like. Their thesis at the time was that they invest in large networks, I'm quoting, of engaged users differentiated by user experience and defensible through network effects. So, They have a very specific point of view on the world. This is not saying, which we'll get to in a minute, the the middle bucket, which I would call thematic investing, which is like, I think that digital media is going to be a thing. This is like, it's it's not even I'm looking at a specific sector. It's that I have this very specific point of view and anything that jives with my point of view is what I'm going to do even if I see things that are in a sector I'm interested in, if it doesn't meet that point of view, then I'm not going to invest in
0: it. Do you know how, how good a job they did sticking to that? Because when you get really tight like that, where you put more than say two constraints on something where you're like, it has to have network effects. It has to, um, have engaged users. It has to differentiate through user experience. I mean, every time, you know, it's, it's a, what n cubed problem right where you're sort of then zooming in and and every time chopping off i don't know a large percent 90 percent of the possible ones that fit within all the previous criteria i
1: think they were pretty disciplined to it and uh fred wilson actually has written a lot about this and and i really respect his thoughts on it and he's pretty upfront he says like if you are right (laughs) if you are right about your thesis and disciplined that is probably the way that you are going to Uh, have the most success and make the greatest returns Uh, and it's the right timing so the thing is you know when they had this thesis you know all this sounds kind of like duh now like invest in large networks of engaged users differentiated by user experience defensible through network effects think back to i think it was 2006 maybe when they invested in twitter 2006 2007 around then same time for zynga like people weren't thinking about this like you know network effects if you said that to uh, most people on the street, they'd look at you like you you know, <laughs> had right. two heads. You're talking about like the big broad, <laughs> like ABC and NBC, the big broadcast Now it's like, networks? so you're a tech investor. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they just nailed the time. They were right and at the right time with this. And so even as a very small partnership, you know, I think it was just Fred and Brad uh, during most of this time, they were able to lead and um, to source uh, and lead investments in these huge huge companies that would drive massive outcomes for them you need to have be very certain on your point of view on the world uh to to do this
0: yeah it's like the more you zoom in the more sort of uh high conviction you have to be in your in your theses and yeah
1: Yep. So that brings us to the middle bucket, thematic investing. It's not a smiling curve or an inverted. I was thinking of an inverted smiling curve because there are examples. You can have great success as an investor and as a firm with all three of these approaches. But most large venture firms, I think, fall into the thematic bucket. Uh, Thematic and generalist, there are a fair number of generalist firms out there, but I think most are in the thematic bucket. And the thematic bucket is. Kind of we alluded to it earlier, like there are swim lanes and those swim lanes might be as broad as enterprise versus consumer. It might be like developer tools. It might be like future of work. It might be like you can get as specific or as or as wide as you want. But those are we as a firm have these buckets, these themes, different partners and different teams, sub within the firm focus on different of these buckets, and then we all aggregate it up together into a firm.
0: Yeah, David, you're the one who can see me. But the reason I'm sort of grinning over here is I don't want to blow uh, his or her cover. So I don't I won't say which VC it is. But a, a great sort of top returning VC told me we're absolutely thematic. We have I don't know what they have five to seven themes that they invest in. But really, that's so we can say no more easily. Like, if we like something, we'll invest in it we definitely believe in these handful of themes over anything else. Like we came up with them because that's the things we think are going to be the future, but they're broad enough intentionally to let us squint or not squint to count something in that theme. You know, that's funny. I actually hadn't quite
1: thought about that, but I suspect there are a lot of firms and even more investors within firms who say they're thematic driven may even believe that they're thematic in they're investing, but really they're generalists and they're just looking for a uh, intellectual um, uh, justification to stand behind.
0: When you think of these themes, there are things like uh future of work or computing at the edge or like, is this boom arm on this mic? Like if I invested in that boom arm company, could I call that the future of work? Maybe. Cause like, I wouldn't have classified it as that a year ago, but the world's changed enough that like you can sort of squint your way into saying to the extent that I can make a hardware investment and I would make it. And I don't know, maybe there's something special about this boom arm where it's it's a bit kind of a bad example, but you can I it's illustrate it. how far. Yeah, you can sort of squint in these thematic areas. Yep. So that's kind of high-level strategy. And then, like we said, those tend to be said at the firm level. I think, what did Jake call them in our uh, interview with uh, Jake Saper from Emergence Cap? They have three priority themes.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, oh, shoot. I can't remember what he called them. I'm sure Jake you is probably... You keep talking.
0: I'm going I'm to look it up.
1: ...yelling into, uh, into his AirPods right now at us.
0: <laughs> Jake, go to sleep.
1: <laughs> uh, he probably needs it. Um, okay. So then... In tactics, I would say there are, we're going to cover a whole bunch of different sourcing tactics here. Broadly, you could put them into four uh, buckets and they're applicable kind of no matter what your strategy is. You you can apply all of these tactics to different strategies. First one is inbound. Uh, so this is, uh, entrepreneurs are coming directly to you either as a firm or as an individual investor. Second, obviously is outbound. Uh, you are going directly to entrepreneurs. Um, and there's a great, great, uh, quote from Catherine Gould, uh, who was one of the legendary VCs from a few generations ago was one of the co-founders of foundation capital. Um, and sadly passed away a few years ago uh, from cancer but she has this great quote which basically says you know, it boils down to in her belief it was not it's not the calls you take as a vc that make your career it's the calls you make she had a great way with words but uh, i don't have the quote exact quote in front of me but um she said you know if you kind of catalog the 10 smartest people you know and you just make a habit of always regularly calling them at any given point in time one or two of
0: them is going to be starting a company and you could just like (laughs) roll with that and do very well in your venture career i would describe us as uh thematic at psl we're like Obviously, we're Pacific Northwest based because there's a few th- key things we believe very strongly that this region will be good at, and we have um, these three sort of themes within there. So I wouldn't call us fully generalist. I wouldn't. I, I'd put us like most people you're alluding to, David, somewhere in the middle, in being thematic. When people ask, "How do you find founders for the studio?" and I know I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here, but the question that my partner Greg, who David obviously know very well from Rover and Madrona, uh, always responds with is. Uh, who is the person that if they came to you and said, I'm starting a company, you would say, I'm in with my personal cash to be an angel investor before I know the idea. Like, it's, it's a very similar concept, I think, to like keep up with those 10 people regularly at some point, catch them when they're starting a company. It's, it's, it's this idea that years before they start a company, you want to sort of know in your head, like, okay, who do I think is going to be? a founder of an amazing company? Um, and how can I just sort of keep up with them?
1: Yep. Hang around the hoop. Uh, and there are a bunch of other different tactics around outbound we'll go into, but, um, yeah, that's just, I always think of, of Catherine when I, when I think of, uh, of outbound. Okay. Next bucket is referral. So this is, you know, somebody referring you a deal, uh, could be another entrepreneur, could be another VC, could be somebody else entirely, but I bucket that separately uh, from inbound and outbound Um, and then the last one that ben you are a world expert on uh, and is in many ways the most highly always highly desired yet elusive form of deal flow and sourcing for lps is the homegrown slash proprietary deal flow classically this was done with things like entrepreneur and residence arrangements although Today, that's not even proprietary, but it could range all the way from that up to you're running a venture studio in-house, which
0: Ben has lots of experience with. That's absolutely one of the the sort of benefits to being an investor in PSL Ventures is, um, David, as you alluded to, the studio creates a handful of companies a year. I think last year was eight. And uh, the fund has some ownership in every single one of those, and can participate in their earliest financing rounds. And so, while the venture fund is not leading those deals in the studio companies, uh, it has exposure by default to a sort of proprietary channel of companies, as you as you just described.
1: Anybody who's anywhere been close to um, private equity investing in any form uh, is gonna get a smile here, like proprietary deal flow, the holy grail. It's it's <laughs> good work if you can get it. All right, so let's jump into brass tacks here on tactics of how within these broad categories and uh, and strategies how to go about sourcing. So <laughs> as part of when I you know talk to talk to Andy Ratcliffe uh, you know at the uh, back when I was at GSB you know going hat in hand saying you know please give me some knowledge he gave me six tactics right off the bat and he said look you know. You should try all of these. You'll figure out which ones you like, which ones you're good at, which ones you're not. But here, kind of like broadly accepted uh, paths. So one, he said, was kind of PR and public presence. And kind of back in, well, certainly his day, and even this time, kind of early 2010s when I was uh, talking to him about this, that really meant like PR. (laughs) Uh, You know, blogging was around. Fred Wilson was blogging. But there's been a lot of development since then.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the, the explosion of the venture ecosystem has also meant the explosion of marketing as a core competency of venture capital firms. It's sort of assumed now that when you look at these enormous platforms like Andreessen Horowitz, that thought leadership and marketing is a piece of what the job of a venture capitalist is. And that just that's only recently true you know, it may not be true of the investing GP, but it may be a core competency of the firm broadly. You think about, you know, the A16Z podcast is sort of this great example of it where it's not, you know, Fred Wilson blogging. It's, you know, a program that's developed by a a person at the firm as a competency of the firm. But David, you're right. Like it wasn't that long ago that it was literally like, see if you can get quoted in the Wall Street Journal.
1: Yeah, maybe hire an outsourced agency to help you do that or go on CNBC or something. Although, actually, it's come full circle going on CNBC now. <laughs> look at Chamath <laughs> and, and look at Jason. Uh, they're making a career out of it. But no, well, like when Andreessen started, they brought on... I can't remember if it was actually I don't think she was a full-time employee of the firm to start but quickly she became a partner uh Margaret uh Wenmarkers I think I think is how she pronounces her last name who was the founder of the Outcast uh PR super famous PR agency they brought her in house like to architect this whole strategy around blogging around uh, having part of it being uh Writing in other news outlets. I mean the Mark Andreessen software is eating the world, op ed in the Wall Street Journal, the op ed heard around the world, you know, the podcast, all of it. So
0: brilliant has become synonymous with the firm. Totally. And to go meta for a minute, anytime you have something moving from a differentiated product to a commodity, marketing is gonna become more important. And so without demeaning ourselves too much, David, here in the commoditization of startup capital, you know, you have a a tremendous abundance of it. You know, a lot of money is uh, just as green as a lot of the other money. And so what do you do to differentiate in the in the very same way that in the jewelry business or in the consumer packaged brands business? You know, uh, this window cleaner is the same as that window cleaner, but. The very minute differences probably won't be known by consumers. So the thing that becomes crucially important and, you know, how P&G built their entire company uh, is the marketing of these things and the ability to, to appear differentiated. And so many, many sources of capital are truly differentiated from many others. The person you're working with at a board level is crucially important to a company. But as it becomes more commoditized than it has been in years past, um, it makes sense that the 2010s were the year where you need marketing to create the perceived differentiation of capital. Well, what's, I think what's been super cool on this, a lot of people
1: dismissed this this whole idea of marketing venture capital firms. It feels tasteless. Uh, and when Andreessen started, I mean, old school VCs were throwing a lot of bombs uh, and um, it was very controversial. What's super interesting now, I think, um, to foreshadow some of the modern sourcing tactics we'll get into including things like podcasting and this very podcast it actually has become a self-fulfilling prophecy that i think having a strong um well i'm gonna i'm gonna characterize it differently in a minute but um having a strong marketing and everything around that competency as a a firm actually helps the companies you invest in
0: (laughs) because you amplify them you both amplify them and you gain access to resources that you otherwise wouldn't have gained access to to make those companies better totally
1: but back in the day this was
0: also did you just (laughs) imply that this this podcast could be content marketing for venture front david how dare you
1: (laughs) (laughs) well we're gonna we're gonna talk uh we're gonna talk much more about that uh, i gonna come at you hard in in a minute. minute okay you come at me hard it is this is definitely not content marketing but because I have a whole different category for it. Okay, so next one that Andy told me is, um, you can be a lab rat, as he called it, uh, which is, you know, go hang out in like, today people would call investors like this, deep tech investors. But you wanna hang around scientists, you wanna hang around computer scientists, whatever whatever your jam is, whether it's physical sciences or, or engineering or whatever, just like be a technology sponge And hang out around the people that are at the bleeding edge, because they're probably some of them are going to be entrepreneurial and want to start companies.
0: Yep. You see a lot of studios actually doing this. Uh, A great example is um, Andrew Ng's AI fund or up here in Seattle, AI Two. both have deep connectivity, either in their organization or outside the organization with AI researchers and are actively seeking to start companies and invest in the work that those those researchers are are sort of spinning out. Yep.
1: Okay. So the next one is pretty specifically tied to, um, the thematic investing strategy, which is just become known as like the investor or the firm in a given space. So like what would be an example
0: of this? Um, Bill Gurley and marketplaces. Exactly.
1: Bill Gurley and marketplaces. Um, and there are whole firms uh, around this now. Like, um, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, Bolton Hardware or um, uh, several fin, great fintech firms out there, Ribbit Capital and others. Not only are you narrowing the universe uh, for your sourcing, but you're also broadcasting out to the world hey, this is what we do. We're the experts. If you are doing, if you're an entrepreneur working in X sector, you need to come talk to us. Um, and it's actually amazing how well this
0: works. Yeah. And the thing that must be occurring to all listeners now is, Well, wait, this sounds sort of like that thing we were talking about earlier around firm strategy. Yes, of course, listeners, you are right. This is something that requires a tremendous amount of alignment. So figuring out from your strategy to your tactics, picking the way in which you are going to sort of create deal flow for yourself to do this top of funnel sourcing um, that completely matches up with your sort of chosen strategy that you'd like to invest in and why you think that will generate outsized returns for your investors.
1: And I think that's actually a really good point, Ben. There are, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to name any names, uh, but there are certainly firms out there that have a strategy around being thematic or a certain land, but who are not good at the tactic of that, that matches up with that, of making it known to the world that that is what they do, either because they don't see the value in it or they're just not good at it. Okay, next one, uh, tap into specific talent networks so i would say you know this is what founders fund uh and actually in many ways i think sequoia has done this too. do best is uh there's a certain population of people where for whatever reason there's fertile dna for entrepreneurship so paypal mafia obviously for whatever reasons we've covered it a bunch on the show a whole slew of
0: former employees and other people involved in paypal went on to start really great big companies and david you know this doesn't have to be just like the big firms that you know have hundreds of millions or billions under under management um, i was talking recently with a uh, one of the founders of Backend capital and it's a super small pre-seed fund that's in their first fund right now and one of the founders there, I think both the founders were involved in Hacks. you know, the biggest, uh, I hate to say University of Michigan because it kills me as a Buckeye, but, you know, one of the biggest and most successful college hackathons in the world that started, what, 8, 10, I don't know, maybe not that long ago, 5 to 8 years ago. And so the talent network that they have there is, you know, organizing thousands and thousands of college hackers to build Products and prototypes and side projects. You know, some of them are going to go and create big companies. And and having that sort of uh, being an existing leader within a community where you can then the the people who in that community are sort of rising to the top, you, you you know them already and they trust you and you're an authority figure to them. It makes total sense that they would want your capital and your your relationships.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if you could argue that this was actually why combinator's primary and most successful tactic as they were starting which was talented engineers who were still in college especially in the boston area in the first couple of years um, but then quickly fanning out all over the country and in, and in the world they pretty uniquely amongst investors were going at that time you know mid to late 2000s to that group of people and saying you can be entrepreneurs we'll fund you
0: yep Yeah, I think that's a that's a great example. Like this is this has been huge for me personally, sort of uh, growing up in the startup weekend movement and being an organizer there. There's been billions and billions of dollars of market cap and or private company valuation. If you sum up all the companies of people that actually started companies at startup weekend like rover or people that were very involved in startup weekend that sort of um, teamed up with other startup weekend people and started things like hightower is a great example of this that merged with vts big multi hundred million dollar merger a few years ago like there's a lot of those types of companies of
1: branch metrics um which is a company that i invested in both because they were my classmates at gsp and because we started a startup weekend there was a bunch of stuff that happened between the startup weekend and the actual company but but, like the core the people, or,
0: or, you know, build those relationships by participating in those programs together. And I think doing 30 startup weekends over the course of my 20s, like, that was a, a meaningful part of how I sort of know the people and get to invest in the people that I do totally the the other thing david i'll point out there is you mentioned knowing them from gsb business school is a great talent network like i think at some Absolutely. point we'll do a, a whole episode on should i go to business school or not that's a just a fantastic example of of a talent network that i know y- you've leveraged over and over and over again in in uh um, in your investing career not just a talent network but also just a network network period but that's, a, that's an episode for
1: another day okay so the last two uh <laughs> tactics that andy gave me are funny in that sort of like the first one the pr <laughs> at the time less so now but still now uh they were viewed as sort of unseemly in the industry but man they absolutely work uh so the first one is make late stage investments in brand name companies to kickstart your reputation and become affiliated and associated with those successful companies that you paid up for to get into once it was already clear, they were a success and then start to migrate into
0: early. Yeah. where are logo shopping. I think might be yeah, another. logo shopping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And
1: you know, it's funny, this one, like <laughs> the VC industry can be so, um, uh, so insular and sort of, uh, it's like middle school, you know, in, in a lot of ways and kind of like petty and mean to its own. I think it's getting better i think it is getting significantly better and i think the newer generations are less like this uh but yeah that's sort of viewed as like oh you know you're cheating or you didn't earn it it absolutely works though
0: well because you can't walk around with with sort of a per company irr on your website but you can walk around with the logos on your website and so you know, you never get to see like you. Sure, you can do some research and figure out what round if it was mentioned in a public forum when they invested. But if it wasn't announced that you invested, it's like, who knows what stage and who knows with what check size? And yeah. Yep, And I think um, obviously their investors will know if you try and use that for track record, but um, you can build hype long before you have to show track record. Right.
1: That's talking about fundraising with LPs. You know, that's an infrequent activity. And if you're a more junior VC, that's something you don't need to worry about at all. What you really need to worry about is your reputation with entrepreneurs. And they're not going to know or care that much. But this gets to the like what's actually valuable about this. Certainly the reputational brand halo from the successful companies is huge. But if you do that, you also get to actually learn from the experiences of those companies. Right, There is real um,
0: intrinsic value there.
1: There's real intrinsic value. You get to learn. You get exposed to the people within them, um, which can help build your talent networks. Like this is a really, especially for newer, younger VCs, I think it's a really great way to jumpstart your sourcing strategies and tactics.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Okay. So the last reason on this, why it's a good strategy, especially for younger VCs is not only are you going to get the learning from the company and the access to the talent networks, but if you get to join the board, either as a member or a board observer, you're going to get to learn from the other venture investors on the board. And this is actually something that hugely, I benefited from so much in my career and continue to that I don't think is talked about enough, which is that you learn a lot from other members of your own firm who you spend a lot of time with, but you can learn just as much, if not more from all the board members at other firms who you share boards with, because you get exposed to different types of
0: thinking yep i mean i think we we heard this straight from uh chathan's mouth on the enterprise investing lp episode where he was saying i think he was on the elastic board with peter fenton or maybe still is yep, that's when, right. when, this is when chathan was at his, his former firm nea before he had joined benchmark and obviously that that learning that sort of mutual learning from each other led to uh, something much more than just learning where they actually you know joined forces later at benchmark, but that's a very common thing, especially in in this sort of mutual context. David, I think you're you're pointing out like for younger VCs to get to learn from more experienced partners, but I think this is a it's a pretty commonplace thing for people to want to co-invest together to get to work on a company together.
1: Totally. And if you're doing late stage investments, you get a multiplier effect on this. So every investment you're making that's a late stage investment, there might be three, four, five great early and mid-stage VCs already on that board, well, boom, you just get to build relationships and learn from all of those all at once. Okay, so then the last one that Andy sort of told me tongue-in-cheek but also absolutely works is beg. (laughs) Uh, And he used the example of another famous VC of uh, his kind of vintage who he said uh, derisively begged uh, to get into all of his early hits and then built a reputation. Really, I think what this means is some combination of begging the entrepreneurs uh, and also just paying up related to the previous tactic. But this can also work at early stage, uh, which is like if there's a hot deal and you're willing to pay the highest price, well, there's a good chance you're going to win that deal.
0: David, to get into our, our next section here, um, listeners, we wanted to include this section and I hope we would have included this section before everything that's been sort of brought to light and the all the protesting that's been happening and, and, and rightfully so uh, this last week. But across all these tactics that we just mentioned and across all of them that will come in our next section. I'm sure many of you uh, have listened to us talk about this and go, oh, my gosh, it's so insular. It's such a echo chamber. Wow. What another great way to fund white males like talent networks from uh, existing successful tech companies or or top tier schools. And and I'm putting top tier in quotes here. Like there's so much. Just fishing in the same pond over and over and over again because A, no one gets fired for buying IBM, and B, everyone just has a tremendous amount of bias and different amounts of sort of buried lack of desire of getting outside their comfort zone at the very least and most charitable way to describe it. And so every single one of these tactics has ways to break outside of these networks. And I think, you know, when you think about the way that you make money in investing is being, um, non consensus and right, like a lot of the things we just described are ways to be consensus. So Mm -hmm. I think if you go do that same stuff as everyone else, if you're going to try and go blog about how software is eating the world, but doing it worse, or you're going to try and talk about some specific up and coming technology and make that your niche, probably a lot of other people are going to do that too. So
1: are you going to try and invest in the PayPal mafia, but you're not
0: Right. Right. It's like what one really fantastic way to be non consensus. And we never know if we're going to be right, but find an opportunity to go and, you know, invest in people that that everyone else isn't rushing to invest into because it of a how it's been historically. As you can probably tell, David and I are are uncomfortable talking about this topic and are trying to discuss it not in one fell swoop here, but weave it more into our conversation because making yourself uncomfortable is the is the way that we sort of fix some of the systemic issues that we have. But it would pain me if we didn't discuss it on this episode of, of how do you bring in top of funnel for people to fund to not sort of bring that to light here in this episode.
1: Um hey amen. I'm so glad you you said all that and and brought it up in and um it's also great because not all but most of those um old school tactics uh that we were just talking about not old school in that they don't work anymore they certainly do work there's also something else about them which is that most of them required you to be at an established vc firm like it's pretty hard to um do something like uh, make late stage investments in brand branding companies if you aren't at a big established sandhill venture capital firm that can do that or to um you know have a big uh PR resources that can help you build out a public presence and get, you know, um cameos on CNBC and the like even just that contributed to keeping a lot of people who otherwise Would have been great investors out of the
0: industry, David. You make a great point. Like this is a um, in a lot of ways, these strategies are are ways for people or brands who already have influence or success or track record of some Some sort sort to leverage that to generate more in the future. And uh, yeah, it's this really interesting thing to think about that sort of cold start problem. How do you do either new firm building or, or or new reputation building on your own? Yeah,
1: and so this is what's cool. There's certainly a lot of this dynamic obviously, obviously that still exists in the industry and, you know, success aggregates to firms and platforms that have already had success and investors who've already had success and all that. But it is so different now than it was in, you know, when was this, 2013, 2014, when I was asking Andy for, uh, you know, his tactics uh, for how to succeed in venture. It's, you know, we'll run through some of these tactics here, but in broad scopes, I think it has become not only so much easier but i think pretty critical these days that you as a person have a voice and use it and have that be part of who you are uh, as a as a person and as a vc and have that be part of your sourcing strategy and so you see things like even you know even i think benchmark has done this uh, accepted this new reality
0: incredibly well. Like you've got benchmark, right? Like the biggest. Uh, yeah, go to their website if you've never gone to their website to try and understand the level of uh, quietness that we've talked about the, that that we're trying to refer to their past as.
1: Yeah. Or I I was even going with, you know, biggest brand, most successful, biggest platform out there, although they, you know, have a part of their brand is being quiet. And I think they are very effective (laughs) brand marketers of themselves. And part of that strategy is being quiet about the firm. But if you go back five plus years ago, other than Bill, who was always blogging, going back to his um, his uh, heritage and days as an equity research analyst, the partners were pretty Quiet and behind the scenes, too. Now, all of them are out there, all on podcasts. You know, Jason's killing it on Twitter right now, you know. <laughs> um, oh, boy. And, uh, VC
0: Twitter. Is this a sourcing yeah. strategy? Oh,
1: boy. VC's Twitter. But uh, yes, it is. Uh, and this is actually the point I want to make, which is that today, between Twitter, blogging, and medium uh, and podcasting, there are so many ways to put your thoughts out there and have a point of view on things. And sure, yeah, it helps if you are part of, um, you know, if you are a investor at uh, NEA or Benchmark or Sequoia or Index or whomever, like that helps Amplify. But that's not going to get you thousands of followers on Twitter. That's not going to get you a top podcast. That's not going to get you a widely read blog or newsletter. What's going to get you there is actually doing the work and making great content which is going to get
0: you (laughs) followers which is going to bring you to opportunities it's such a good point i mean like uh, the friend of the show turner novak awesome example of this like he's at gelt vc it's it's definitely not sort of a brand in the way that benchmark or sequoia are but like turner is one of the smartest and most sort of well written and tweeted people about consumer social and like people pay attention. And that no doubt um, will get him conversations with people starting the next great consumer social app in a way that he wouldn't have before.
1: Yeah. All of these are tactics, whether it's Twitter or blogging or podcasting, they work incredibly well. I think <laughs> to be a little biased and, and um, uh, about ourselves here at Acquired, I think actually where this is heading is building a community. Um, and I think that's that's what we really try to do here at acquired um with the main show with the slack with the lp show with the lp calls with uh with everything we do it's about creating a community around a shared interest and passion for you know in the case of acquired understanding and studying and building and learning about great companies and that's naturally gonna develop its own center of gravity and have great things come out of it so i kind of think of this as like the most evolved uh version of this like it even most lives evolved. completely on its own <laughs> I, I was okay i just won the award for like biggest uh oh my self God. uh self tooting of a G- horn give me
0: like a galaxy brain uh, <laughs> okay maybe right we now. should cut this no no it's staying in no i love <laughs> oh, it <laughs> damn it <laughs> no but it, it, david you make a great point like greg my partner an incredible community builder and the tech ecosystem in seattle over the last 20 years and i think like all of us who were starting companies at startup weekend thought maybe we'll maybe maybe we'll get a meeting with greg so that you know he's always the judge at the startup weekends he's always here he's always at stuff he's accessible there's a, a tremendous amount that sort of comes from being an accessible person who is is willing to sort of like have conversations with anyone anytime. Um, I know that's not the brand of lots of ECs. There's multiple strategies here. You're famously bad at email. You don't even answer my emails, but like, I mean, you, you just sort of pick which, where you want to be active not to get you in the chair here, but like you just choose in what way you want to engage in community. And like the acquired Slack is, is like a huge one, but, um, but you, you, I'm just trying to say you're not accessible by email. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: is very right true. I think
0: that is defensively.
1: I would put that in actually a separate topic for this for, uh, you know, me, it's just like, um, I think I find to rabbit hole on my, my being bad at email, <sighs> you know, we're, we're really pulling back the curtain here on this episode. For me, it's that I kind of found over time, like when I first started my career, I was hyper hyper responsive on email, and I think that serves served me really well when I was when the primary function of my job was to work for and support other people and help them with their achieve what they wanted to achieve. But then over time, as that evolved, as it does in any career, but especially once you get into investing and making and leading investments. I kind of realized that like that, Whoa, it's a, it's a whole different ballgame game now. And for me, at least as kind of, I think about things, I'm like super hyper bad at context switching. <laughs> and, uh, and so I need like large blocks of time to focus on whatever it is. It could be mundane stuff, but like, well, stuff like sourcing or stuff like, you know, thinking about a company uh, or, or or a board or a board problem or whatever, I started finding that like by shutting myself out of email and related stuff, like that gave me space to do that. And I think maybe I've gone too far. I think I've just gotten hooked on it. And now I just find excuses to push off doing email for days and days at a time.
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, to bring it back to sourcing, it's basically a resource management problem where you can't do everything. So what are the tactics that you're gonna do that best support your strategy? And it's gonna be different for everyone. It's gonna be different for every strategy. There's only so many hours a day. So like I similar to the way you've pulled back from email, I've kind of pulled back from events. I think it's important for me to have the evenings to kind of catch up on on work and personal relationships and in a lot of ways like actually do the work since the days are kind of filled with meetings. You know, I used to go to tons of events and I loved that I sort of was like Accessible is the wrong word because I think like it, it, no one would think it would be hard to access me, but I sort of loved being out there in the community and mingling all the time and that became an unsustainable thing for me. And so it's like, okay, well, how do you want to allocate the resource that is your time and what is the highest leverage activities you can perform that will support your strategy? Oh, and by the way, sourcing is only one of many jobs of you know a, a great venture capitalist and a great startup studio person.
1: You hit the nail on the head there with resource allocation. And I think that's the coming full circle here on sourcing. That's what it is. All of these broader firm strategies, kind of different buckets of sourcing, and then individual tactics, they're all tools at your disposal. You got to figure out which ones work for you, which ones you like using, and which combination for anybody. It's going to be multiple of these. Hardly anyone has just one tactic that they use for sourcing, but then you need to think about what's going to be what's going to be most productive.
0: One takeaway that I just don't think I quite realized is it's a funnel like any other. Sort of before getting into venture, it's there's sourcing you will do accidentally and there's sourcing you will do intentionally, but the sum of those things are the only world of possible things that you could invest in. I do think one other thing that we should dive into here a little bit, we didn't sort of prepare this in the notes, but who does sourcing at a venture firm? I think we, we've we done an episode very early on called uh, How a Venture Firm Works and talked about the roles, but I think it's worth talking about sort of like who does what form of sourcing at venture firms um, so folks can sort of parse through that.
1: Yeah, um, and it's super different at different firms. On <laughs> um, one extreme, you have a firm like say, a benchmark where there's basically only GPs and they're just doing it all themselves. And actually, I think more and more over time, investors and firms are operating more like that, even if they have different structures. Then at the other extreme, you've got places like, you know, kind of Summit and TA and Growth Equity sort of pioneered the model of it's the opposite that associates all the way down at the bottom are the ones who are doing all the sourcing. And then the partners are just sifting through. Take the final meetings. Yeah, exactly. Do, do the
0: high-level diligence calls. Call the CEO of uh, the you know uh, incumbent company. Ask if they think this is a good, good investment and an up-and-comer. But you know, not doing any of the customer diligence or the we're talking about different jobs to be done of the venture firm right now, but they're sort of uh, structures that come from the private equity world and from the more traditional finance public market investors world. And then there's structures that look completely different, like like you described with a benchmark or any firm that is sort of just GPs and the GPs do everything.
1: There's all sorts of things in between that. There's also then the kind of team sourcing model well certainly i think meritech was like this when i was there um and madrona was pretty much like this too as madrona got bigger it i think became more individual but still had a very strong team ethos which was you know hey we're all we're all in this together you ben might have more expertise in a given area but i david might meet somebody who or either a company or a person who's right for that well great let's do a handoff or let's work on it together and that can be super fun too
0: yep yeah i mean great example is like whenever i get a pitch for a digital health company it's like immediately cc my partner ta and i'm like awesome ta is one of the best people in the world to talk to about this i am not like but in some cases, I'm like, because we have a strong relationship, I want to like do this together with TA or if it's a cold email, I'm like, uh, I am of no value here. So straight up handoff.
1: <laughs> yep. Cool. Well, this episode has gone uh, a lot deeper than, uh, than I think we wanted. Hopefully it's been helpful to LPs. Uh, certainly, actually, it's been helpful to me to kind of codify and think about all these and think about where I'm allocating my time
0: like many episodes that we do and i think like all six or if we decide to add or subtract five to seven of these vc fundamentals episodes like everything is going to be on a spectrum and there's every firm is going to do something different and you just have to decide where you sit on each one of these spectrums
1: Yep. cool
0: well lps thanks so much for joining us and uh, we will talk to you next time
1: talk to you next time